This is Cade Massey, practice professor at the Wharton School. On this week's Wharton Moneyball Highlight Show, we have an interview with Jeff Sackman. Jeff is a longtime tennis writer and analyst, one of our favorites, to be honest. We read this guy, love this guy. It's been a few years since we've had him on the show. The pandemic kind of intervened, but we had a terrific conversation with him about Wimbledon and about the state of tennis in general. Jeff Sackman. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball Sports Analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey in this hour with two-thirds of my colleagues, three-quarters of the Wharton Moneyball crew. Audie Weiner is here dialing in from his house. He's been from the office lately. Turning into a slacker like the rest of us, calling it from himself. Shane from the usual home office, me from Midwest America. Eric Bradlow is out and about this week. He'll be back. Jeff Sackman is with us today, coming to us via Zoom as we are to each other and as we do these days. Jeff is a, among many other things, a tennis analyst. We've talked with Jeff a number of times over the years, but it's been a while. In fact, I think it may be pre-pandemic since we've talked to Jeff, and we've missed him, damn it. We enjoy him immensely. He's one of the best you can read on tennis, in our opinion. And we're good. glad to see you, Jeff. Thanks for making time for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Jeff is coming to us from Oslo. He lives there, even though he's a native of the Pacific Northwest in the States. He lives there now. He is the founder of TennisAbstract.com, TennisAbstract.com. You can also find him on Twitter. I believe under the same handle, you find him published in various places, many places over the years, these days, mostly at tennisabstract.com, but we strongly urge you to track him down for a deeper look at tennis, not just the superficial stuff, which can be fun, but deeper analytical look at tennis. Now, Adi seems to have managed his technical stuff and is flying in here wearing some Miami Dolphins aquamarine t-shirt looking ready to go. Okay, Jeff Sackman, how are you, sir? What is on your mind this week as probably the most famous of tennis tournaments get underway? Yeah, this is this is the big one. Wimbledon is the is the, the centerpiece of the tennis calendar and has been for over 100 years. Um, Novak Djokovic is going for history. We're going to see whether whether he can add yet another Grand Slam. We're w- looking to see whether Iga Swiatek can figure out how to play on grass and cement her status as the best player in the game. There's, I mean, every Grand Slam. There's there's so many questions, and and this one's no different. Well, I, I you know being forecast people and probability people, I was drawn immediately to the forecasts on your page. You break down both draws, and digging through the men's draw. I see that even though Alcaraz is, I think, the number one seed, Djokovic, you have as twice as likely to take the title. I think it's something like 37 to 18, something like that. Can you talk about what's going into those numbers, how you think about forecasts, how much of that is a draw? Does Alcaraz have a tougher draw? If those guys were head-to-head, what would you put their probabilities at? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, my draws are based on ELO ratings, and I'm sure you and your listeners are pretty conversant in the whole ELO concept. Um, the one tweak or one tweak, major tweak that I have to do for tennis is that players play differently on different surfaces. Um, so Alcaraz is, he's not a clay court specialist, but he grew up playing on clay courts. He's had his greatest successes so far in his career on clay courts. Djokovic, on the other hand, plays well on every surface, has played very well at Wimbledon in the past. 
So my ratings take into account both the player's overall performance and their surface-specific performance. Alcaraz has very little experience on grass. He did win one of the warm-up tournaments, but still, that's nothing compared to what Djokovic has. So the biggest part of that difference we mentioned, which is absolutely right, I think it's 37%, 18.5%. The biggest part of the difference is grass court experience, proven grass court excellence, I think there's a little bit of a draw effect as well, which which can be huge, especially on grass courts, yeah. because the the seedings are determined by official overall ranking. So you've got Kasper Ruud, our, our hero here in Norway. I think he's the number four seed, the number four player in the world. But he has basically nothing going on on grass. Like he didn't prepare okay. at all. He was hanging okay. out in Norway for the last three weeks since Central <laughs> and Garros. In, he did win today, but no one's expecting him to go much further. So that's someone who on paper you'd look at and say, oh, that's a semifinalist. But a tennis person's going to look at that and say, <laughs> someone else is going to be in the semifinals. So you'd much rather be on the on the other half from him. But that sort of thing goes right down the draw. I mean, you've got a number 30 who could be a real threat. You've got number 29 who's basically never played on a grass court. So with with grass court tennis, it's so rare so- these days. It's... um. It's it's kind of like you have to throw away the the top level numbers and you have to dig into okay. what people have actually done on grass courts. Jeff, do the do the tournaments consider uh, surface performance in their seeds? Not at all. Wimbledon not of a zero. Okay, yeah, zero. Wimbledon used to, and that actually was a big controversy maybe thirty years or so ago because. All the all this mostly Spanish clay court specialists were getting penalized every year by Wimbledon because see, they weren't they weren't right. going to play well on grass. Right, right. But they they hated it, and understandably so. I mean, the seedings are really valuable. So they had a whole fight. Wimbledon made a compromise where they'd take the top thirty two players as according to the overall ratings, but then they'd rearrange them if they wanted. So over right. the years, it, it got less and less and less. And then finally, a few years ago, they finally gave in and said, you know, okay, we're Wimbledon, we're super important, but yeah, uh, whatever. We'll we'll take your ratings. Have your official rankings. That's fine. Okay. Well, that just introduces additional noise in the or the or important variation in the draws, right? So it just it's, it exacerbates the thing you were talking about before. Shane had a follow up question here, I believe. Yeah, I guess when you're talking about kind of predicting, um, do you think uh, that the kind of like surface differential differential performance on surface is more important in like? The top, top, like the top 30 players. And like if, if, for example, you wanted to predict, say, the the top 100 players, would it be easier to kind of do the bot like that, that 30 to 70 kind of group not taking into account court? Like, does the court differential kind of really stand out only once you get to that kind of top 30 in the world level? Or when is the or the sort of surface differential? When does that kind of really make a biggest the biggest difference? I'm not sure you can really pinpoint a ranking range lately with the we've been talking big four for the last you know 15 years of men's tennis. And those guys, for the most part, they are the big four because they figured out how to play really well on all surfaces. That's unusual. I mean, historically, it's unusual. Uh, among other players now, it's unusual. So there have always been players with strong tendencies. And it could be someone like Kasper Ruud, who's a top five player right now and much, much, much better on clay than he is on grass. But then you could have somebody ranked 50 or 150 or 500 who is fine across the board. I mean, whether it's because of experience or because of their game style, um, it's it, it's those are really the factors. And aside from the absolute like world historical greats like Djokovic, I mean, you can be a tremendously great Hall of Fame player and have a very strong surface preference. 
or mm-hmm. you can have none. So it did, I, I wouldn't want to draw any conclusions like that. Jeff, of course, another unique feature of majors is that they're three of five sets. How does that factor into your simulations and your forecasts? I would think that that would be an important consideration. It is. And it it favors favorites, which is kind of a tongue twister. Right. Right. Um, I mean, because three out of five is more likely to give you the the, the right, the, the correct winner than two out of three. I mean, I whenever people are, well, let me start that one over. Um, people often complain when matches go long that we should ditch the best of five format because you can have a best of five match that goes five, six hours long. And that is that is pretty nuts when you think about it, uh, especially if you're writing for a newspaper on a deadline and you're sitting in a press box until 1.30 in the morning. I can see why right. you would complain about that. Um, but I always like to joke back, like, why don't we just go best of 17? Just go all out. Let's really figure out who the best player of this match yeah, is. Yeah, right, right. So, so what I do with the forecast is I've, I've worked out what that effect is. Uh, I'm, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but if, if you have a winner who's like a 60-40 favorite, um, then it might be like 66-33 or 66-34, I guess, um, because of the best of five. So, I mean, it, yeah, it makes right. it more likely. That's, that a, the, substantive, that's a substantive tick up. That's interesting. You raise an interesting uh, wrinkle. Or you ask it in a way that takes us to a topic we often talk about, Jeff, that's tournament design essentially and there's always this question of exactly what you just posed how much trouble do you want to go to to identify the true better player versus how much chance do you want to let influence the outcome and there's it's not zero percent chance there's people want a certain amount of chance in there um and it seems like they've over the time over time kind of tweaked these rules to get into that sweet spot shane yeah, actually, that was uh, just to kind of follow up on what Kate was saying. That was kind of like, I, I, as, a, as a tennis fan, I would like to hear kind of your preference to sort of how much you kind of want. Like like a player like no, Djokovic should be allowed to dominate if they truly are dominant over the other players. But at the same time, the same dominant player winning every major maybe as for, you know, is not as exciting. So I don't, how much do you kind of balance sort of surprise uh, versus sort of like, you know, pre- predictability when thinking about uh, a tournament? Well, tennis kind of has it already, um, even even if you're going best of five, because the, the way the scoring system is matches hinge on pretty small numbers of points. I mean, if Djokovic is dominating, Djokovic is dominating. And I mean, there's no way no way you can design a reasonable facsimile of tennis that changes that. But most of the time, the winner is winning like 55 percent of points, maybe 57 or 58. Very rare do they hit 60. Often you have winners who are winning like. 50.5% or even 49%. So it really comes down to who's winning a few points in a tie break, who's converting a couple break points versus not doing that. And that's that's true in three of f- out of five, even if it's a little less true than it is in, in two out of three. So I'm kind of happy with however it is. Uh, I'm going to um, I'm gonna digress a little bit here and, and say a, a, a related issue is how long players are taking between points these days and matches getting longer and longer and longer. That's the main reason why tournaments are switching to two out of three is back in the day, every single men's tennis match, at least in the back end of a tournament was three out of five. And those matches went like two hours. If a, if a match went two and a half hours, a newspaper report would say this was a really long match. It lasted two hours and 35 minutes. That was a big deal. Now two hours and 35 minutes is like that's table stakes in best of five set, set tennis. Uh, if if you can bring that back, you can have three out of five. 
And when you have that, then players are playing faster. They're not focusing so incredibly hard on every single point. And that does in- introduce a little bit of chance back in there too. If you're not, if you're not focusing for your absolute strongest serve on every point and so on. So interesting it, to me, the time and the, and the, the luck factor are related. Yeah. Well, there's a massive uh, article on um, the athletic this week about the length of tennis matches. And they talked about these factors and a number of other ones. And we will dive into that at some point but shane's joking here about wanting a pitch clock they act being a baseball guy and seeing the revolutionary effect that the pitch clock has had on baseball this year they do in fact have a clock of some kind in tennis do they not it's because of these guys taking all this time between points do they just need it to be quicker jeff it, 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 I don't know whether it's the t-shirt I'm wearing, but there's a, there's actually a button on my shoulder. It's like press here for rant. And you just, <laughs> we just hit it. We, 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 the rant, someone cut you off, Jeff, just as you got ready to rant, you froze. You're going to come back here in just a minute. It's oh, a conspiracy no. on behalf of whoever this rant is going to be against, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, but... which I, I think will probably be the tennis version of my, you know, robo umps rant. So yes, it will be. <laughs> well, let's hear. Adi's, Adi's been dying to get in, and apparently we've been ignoring him. Adi, you want to you want to share your thoughts while we wait to, for Jeff to come back online? Yeah, I, I, although my questions are addressed to him. Um, you know, when you do a lot of modeling of, uh, with particularly ELO modeling or any power ranking modeling, typically you you're really after the probability that one team beats the other team because that's ultimately what matters. Some sports go for points, right? Um, because that's the, that's how you determine, um, you know, in a football match or baseball. Um, but in tennis, you really just want to do a win. But if you can think about it, you can actually break it down by set. And I wonder whether or not the, the power ranking for tennis is broken down by set, which then automatically gets the three to three out of five kind of built in because if it's 0.55, 0.45 on a set, you just keep, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a, you can calculate what the chances that they'll win best out of five as, as opposed to best out of three. Or it may be that that's just ridiculous and that there's autocorrelation, strong car, uh, correlation within sets, and that a, a player who loses one is going to go back and, and win the other. There's, you know, in, in set tanking, if you get broken yeah. twice early, you'll relax a little bit and have some strength left it's, over to win the next one. So I just wonder what the modelers have to say. I've never done any of this. And, no, uh, and as a model, it's a great it's a great question because, you know, I mean, you can think about this at baseball, like at what resolution in like kind of an adversarial sort of yeah. matchup type sport at what kind of resolution of that? you know, kind of that process, do you want to model it? You know, you know, pitcher versus batter too. Do you want to kind of be doing it at the at-bat level or the pitch-by-pitch level? It's kind of the same thing here. Do you want to be modeling like, you know, game-by-game or is it at the set-by-set? Like where's kind of the best kind of level to sort of model at? Such a great question. And I know where Adi was coming from when he first came to it is because as a modeler, he didn't want a little fudge factor as you move from two to two, two out of three to three out of five, he wanted the actual structural model, which makes sense. Just He's like, just put it at the set level and then let it play out and you can just calculate. But y'all are raising exactly the right questions. Like what's the right resolution? We're still waiting for Jeff to come back online who would have a more informed answer. But my strong sense is that the right resolution is the match and that there is this correlation between sets. And in particular, this tanking, tanking I'm sure is not the right word, but um, where guys at some point will ratchet back load management, back. I guess load the management. version of load within, management. Yes. Within match load management is exactly what happens. And and guys like, well, we're going to lose this set. So I'm going to save my fuel for the yeah. next set. You know, one thing we could, we could think about is that over 10 years of doing Wharton Moneyball, how many words 
or concepts are new since then. And load management is one of them. <laughs> I never oh, that's had. interesting. <laughs> Wait, well, I, I was the process already was did, does what Moneyball predate we, or postdate the was, uh, trust we, the process? We, we postdate it within a few months. We just hit okay. the ten year anniversary of the process this okay. this season, I think, and we just hit the nine year. anniversary. So we're kind of moving in parallel with the process, <laughs> and I think doing uh, better than doing I, better I than the yeah. pro, doing better than the process is done. To be honest, that's, that's right? why we don't want too many parallels, Shane. Not too many parallels well, with the process. Well, I mean, well, I mean, we've just sort of we've maintained that same excellence over all this time, whereas you know the actual. Sixers and yeah. something down more. Some, something like that. This is Wharton Moneyball. This is Q2 of Wharton Moneyball. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Cade Massey in here with Jeff Sackman talking a little bit of tennis analytics. We have Jeff back now having surmounted his technical issues. Jeff, before we get to your rant, we think some tennis authorities are eavesdropping and cut you off because you said you were going to give a rant. But before we give you that, we have a question from Audie and it goes to the modeling and the short of it is like, what's the right unit of analysis for evaluating head-to-head strength? And the idea was it sure would be convenient if you could do it at the set um, unit, because then, you know, two out of three, three out of five, whatever, you just calculate it. But we have the sense that that there's kind of correlation, there's autocorrelation between sets. Like, most importantly, there might be some load management of sorts. I, I think famously, tennis players will take it easy if they're deeply behind on a set and they just kind of they save their ammo for the next set if that's true then you can't do it on a set by set basis you got to have kind of a match level unit of analysis what's your take on that part of it what i do is at the set level um so oh, you i do, do exactly at the set level. I, I do oh, exactly okay. the basic thing you're talking about so it okay. is it, it is pretty straightforward and pure math to go from best of three to best of five what you're saying about load management it's not wrong um and if you go back 30 years, especially, or more than that, then it was really blatant. Like it was, it was like textbook tennis to say, I won the first two sets. I'm a little bit worn out. I'm just going to take it easy. I mean, there were guys Uh famously in the forties and fifties who would do that basically on purpose. They'd win two sets, they'd go all out. Then they just, you know, slowly waltz through the next two, lose them and then come back hard in the fifth. Like it didn't Uh tell you anything about their ability level that they went to five sets. That doesn't happen anymore. People are pretty much playing hard all the time. I see. Okay. You can see anecdotes to the contrary, but it's not enough to change the the way I would model. It doesn't affect the results that much. Okay, Shane. Just as a quick follow-up to that, the other way you could kind of look at it within set load and management, you can kind of look at like, you know, do we kind of see more six nothing, six zero, six one? Like you'd kind of you'd kind of think you'd see it sort of like, you know, the game results within set, whether or not load management was occurring. Cause if a particular player's, you know stopping you know they're really not trying very hard at like once they're down by two games you're going to get kind of almost more sort of big kind of differentials within yep. set of games yep. than you would expect kind of by chance i don't yeah, know if people I, have looked at that i think the way that coaches coach these days like the conventional wisdom in tennis w- works against that i think that they're for various reasons they're encouraging players to go close to all out most of the time. So if in men's tennis, the serve is so dominant most of the time that if if you're losing a set, then at the very least, you want to keep holding your serve so that you can serve first in the next set. So for, oh, for, wow. for, force your opponent to serve it out, um, even if you probably won't win, even if it's Isner serving it out, he's definitely going to beat you. Um, in women's tennis, it can be so topsy-turvy, even if that's just perception, there's this idea that, okay, I'm down five love, 30 love, but if I just crack a couple return winners here, I'll change the momentum and who knows what could happen. Maybe I'll win the next 12 games on the trot. And Uh 
I mean, maybe that only happens once or twice a season, but their perception is there that if you keep pushing, you might you might crack something open. And that means that they're not trying 100% in every point, but it's it's closer to that than there would be in pretty much any set or really any reasonable way you'd teach tennis if you were doing it with peer analytics. But that that's just the way they think about it. All right, Jeff, we're going to time out here in a second. But before we do, we want to circle back to the rant that you were about to give us before you got cut out. We were talking about the length of these tennis matches. We referred to this athletic article that came out this week. It really sounds um, pretty extensive how much longer matches are getting. And we talked about the fact they do actually have a shot clock or pitch clock, if you will. But this somehow isn't working. What, what are your thoughts on this? OK, so the serve clock allots 25 seconds between points. And the first problem is that's a long time. I mean, most players did not use 25 seconds between points. So, I mean, you don't save much time if you stick with that in the first place. The main problem is it's standardized 25 seconds. So in the old days, it might be an average of 10 or 15 seconds between points, but then you'd have a really long rally. Players would dawdle and they'd go to 40 seconds. So that 40 seconds is cut off, but you don't have to do much math to realize that if you take away 90% 15 seconds and 10% Mm -hmm. 40 seconds, and replace them all with 25 seconds, you've got a longer <laughs> result. That's the main yeah. problem. So that's that's okay. the first issue. But the main issue beyond that is the way they actually count the 25 seconds. So the way it works is when the umpire calls the score, that's when the 25 seconds starts. So if you've got a bruising rally and the crowd is up in arms and, and cheering, and only when the noise dies down does the umpire say 30-15 and start the yeah. clock. So you're already okay. 10 or 15 seconds in. So it's a 40 second shot clock and they don't enforce it that strongly. I mean, Joe Posnanski wrote this great thing about the MLB uh, pitch clock that the one thing they learned from one of the minor league trials is that you've got to enforce it strictly. It's got to be, right. you've got to establish this is the rule now. And they didn't right. do it on the first try and it fell apart. And it's obvious why I in see. retrospect. They don't enforce it at all. There's such a sort of gentleman's agreement between umpires Um, and players. uh Indirectly, umpires are partly employed by the players. So if you're you're starting your service motion when the serve clock runs out, then it's okay. If you you hit a first serve, if you throw your toss up and let it bounce because it's a bad toss, ah, no problem. That's okay. (laughs) If you miss your first serve and then wait another 15 seconds before hitting your second serve, which some players Um. do all the time, there's okay. no rule at all against that. So it's it's 25 seconds in name only, and 25 seconds itself is slow. So okay. I mean, th- this was kind of doomed to fail from the outset, even if it was hard to say that at the time. Okay, all helpful. And the push clock being such a high-profile element of our sports-watching life this year, this summer, it's an interesting wrinkle to add to our Wimbledon watching. Tell us, Jeff, before we let you go, What's something else we should be paying attention to at Wimbledon this year? Either something to enhance our enjoyment, you know, so we're not just frustrated with the pitch clock, uh, the surf clock, or um, something that would make us a little bit smarter, wiser consumers of tennis these days. What's one tip you have for us? Wow, making you a smarter, wiser consumer of tennis. Um, I mean, I think one way tactics have changed over the years is to really raise the status and the importance of the return of serve. Um, 
serves come back more than they did for a while in tennis. In women's tennis, return of serves are more aggressive than they've ever been. So someone like Arena Sabalenka or Elena Rybakina, who are two of the, the, the big three in women's tennis right now, they serve big. Absolutely. They're going to hit some aces, but they are absolutely swinging away sometimes on returns of serve, even if they're playing each other, even if they're facing 110 mile an hour first serves. They're swinging away. They're going for corners. And that's often where matches are won and lost. And mm. I, I haven't fully worked out the implications of all that, but it, it feels like going back to what I was saying about the perception of momentum, I mean, there may really be something there that, I mean, if, if someone's serving big right in your face and you can bash back a forehand winner at 90 miles an hour in the corner, then mm-hmm. that would give someone something to think about. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's no longer the, the tennis of the nineties or the early aughts where it was just like chip it back in and hope for the best. It's, it's a tactical play in its own right. A lot of players are stepping in more, both men and women. And that's often what's defining the point more than the serve itself or more than any later tactics, because okay. we still run that long. So that second shot is really what's determining how it's going to go. Is there anybody on the men's side who is especially well-known for his return of serve? There have been some greats over the years who were famous for that. Yeah, someone like Leighton Hewitt sticks out as a, a big returner. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alcaraz is the guy to watch since I think a lot of a lot of casual tennis fans haven't seen a lot of Alcaraz. He hasn't played a lot on grass, but at Queens Club a couple of weeks ago, he was stepping in. I mean, against big serves on a fast surface, he was standing around the baseline to return serve, and he's so quick. I mean, you think of him as a Spaniard, more like in the Nadal mode, but he's kind of in the Federer mold as well. He's just really quick, really flexible, good at improvisation, so he can stand up close and and get things back that you wouldn't expect him to do anything with so i I feel kind of bad for coming on an analytics like a dark horse kind of show and and saying hey go watch the number one seed but (laughs) that's what you should watch the number one seed for okay that's great now we'll take it we'll take it that's that's good fun jeff thanks for joining us i appreciate you making time for us today absolutely thanks for having me Jeff Sackman, TennisAbstract.com, one of the best writers and analysts you can read on tennis. Strongly encourage you to track his work down. TennisAbstract.com, also on Twitter, TennisAbstract, and you can find his writing in various publications. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. We appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.